your Bibles again and turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and I'll be reading the entire passage. Certainly an example to us all what it means to love the brethren. Not simply saying, I love the brethren, but living this truth, walking in this truth. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him and to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. 
Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> we continue our series this Lord's Day through the epistle, the first epistle of John. And we find ourselves, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. How do you know that you know God? That was a question we asked last time. Well, the Gnostics of old who professed to be Christians declared, and many professing Christians today as well declare, I know that I know God because of the experience I've had with God. However, as we read this epistle, the Apostle John does not focus on the experience one may have had with God. That is not the focus. But rather, the Apostle John gives three objective tests that will give a true assurance, a true knowledge that one does know God, that one is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we mentioned last time we met the three tests that John mentions and gives is the test, first of all, of obedience. If you keep my commandments. The second test, which we will consider today, is love for the brethren. And the third test is belief in the truth. Not how do I feel today, not how did I feel yesterday, but am I keeping His commandments, loving the brethren, and do I hold to the truth? Objective tests. I'm reminded several years back of an interview that I conducted with one who wanted to become a member of our congregation. And I asked him, could you please relate how you came to know the Lord, the circumstances that surrounded that? That's always a, an encouragement to us to see how God leads his people to himself. And he does so in many varied ways. And so when I asked this man this question, he proceeded to relate to me very sincerely I certainly have no question or doubt as to his sincerity. But he proceeded to tell me and tell the other elders present that it surrounded an experience where he 
was upon an operating table and his heart stopped beating. And you have heard of these various uh, out-of-body experiences. Well, this particular man proceeded to relate that it was something similar to that. That he saw his body there. He heard the voices that were going on within the room. The monitors, it beep, beep, as it uh, was uh, uh, beeping and as the uh, uh, indication of his heart having stopped, uh, he proceeded to uh, relay all of this to us. And he said as a result of that, he obviously survived, uh, uh, as a result of that experience that he began to look very, con- uh, very sincerely at the things of God and Jesus Christ and came to profess his faith in Jesus Christ. And upon hearing that, I certainly didn't think that I was any kind of an authority that I could question or debate the issue of what had happened to him or he said happened to him. I said, that's really not the issue. The issue that I want to know is, who is your faith in? Is your faith in that experience or is your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation? What are you trusting in? How do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ now? Is it because of that experience or is it because you keep His commandments? Because you love the brethren and you believe the truth. And He assured me that He was clinging to Christ and not trusting in any experience And that he did found his assurance and base his assurance upon those three objective tests. Dear ones, last time we considered that very first test the Apostle John gives in order to assure you that you have truly come to know God. It's found in 1 John 2.3 if you keep his commandments. That first test has to do with the question, do you cherish? Do you guard? Do you keep? Do you treasure God's commandments? Or are God's commandments, on the other hand, a heavy burden? An almost unbearable cross for you to bear? Commandments which you despise? No one who is a Christian, should doubt the fact that God's commandments are hard work to keep. No one should doubt at all that there are struggles in keeping God's commandments according to Romans chapter 7. But do you love them? In the inner man, do you cherish them? Do you want to keep them? Or are you looking rather for all kinds of excuses to break them? How many times in counseling sessions have I heard, if only my husband would be a more godly leader, wives have told me, boy, I would submit just like that. Or how many times I've heard from, from uh, husbands, if only my wife would be more submissive to me, boy, would I want to be a godly leader and to love her. Or others have said, it was just a small sin that I committed. Compared to the sins that people are committing today, this is, by comparison, nothing. Well, remember, dear ones, it was a seemingly small sin that brought death and misery of every kind into this world. Simply eating the forbidden fruit has brought death and misery You see, it's not which commandment. God calls us to keep all of His commandments because all of His commandments come from Him. They are His. And He has given to them so that we, if we offend in one, we offend in all. But there's another test that the Apostle John gives. And that's the test that we find in verses 7 through 11 of 1 John chapter 2. Do you love the brethren? 
Do you love the brethren? Or would it be more accurate to say that you simply put up with the brethren? That you tolerate the brethren? You see, in a small church, and there are many small churches, we're not the only small church, there are many small churches around, and it seems as though you come much quicker to see the warts at the ends of the noses of the people in small churches because you know them better. You see them. You talk with them. It's easier to get lost in a larger church. Have you simply resigned yourselves to putting up with one another, ignoring one another, and even secretly hoping certain ones will simply just leave you alone? And go away. You see, simply to tolerate a brother or sister is to have given up on that brother and sister. That's quite a claim to say, I'm just going to tolerate them. You, in effect, have given up on them. But you can't do that. The scripture says you cannot give up upon a brother or sister. You are to love the brethren. In this section, I will be addressing these four points. First of all, John states in verse 7, this commandment to love the brethren in terms of being an old commandment. And then in verse 8, John turns around, secondly, and states this commandment to love the brethren and says that it's a new commandment. Thirdly, John gives in verse 9 the false claim of the Gnostic false teachers. And then fourthly, John refutes this false claim in verses 10 through 11. And so we want to consider these points in the sermon today. First of all, then, let's consider John's appeal to this commandment and calling it an old commandment. In verse 7, notice what John says. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The word that John uses here for old in verse 7, is a word which refers to something of long duration. That which has been around for a long time, this commandment that he refers to, is not something new in terms of age or time. The commandment to love the brethren was not given for the first time by John as he wrote this particular epistle. John is saying that this commandment is old. Well, expressly, we find this commandment mentioned in the law of God. We read from Leviticus 19 earlier, where God says to love your neighbor as yourself, and then goes on to talk about the alien and the foreigner within the land and says that you're to love him as yourself as well. And then we move not only from the law of God in the Old Testament, we move to the life of Christ. And in the commandments of Christ, we read from John chapter 13 as well. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. And so it's not new. And finally, we would say it's not new, it's old, because even in the ministry of the Apostle John, he had previously told them that they were to love the brethren. We see in verse 7, 1 John 2, 7, he says, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard. John says, you heard it from the beginning. From the very point of, uh, of your conversion, you heard that that was one of your duties and responsibilities was to love the brethren. <clears throat> you see, the Gnostics 
We're emphasizing new experiences, new knowledge. They were emphasizing new revelation, but John the Apostle emphasizes the old commandment at this point. By way of application, let me simply say, dear ones, it is not new truth. It is not new revelation that we need today. It is rather understanding of and obedience to the old truth, to the old revelation, to the old commandments of God that are found in His unchangeable Word. We don't need a new word from God. We need wisdom. And oh, how we need wisdom to apply the old word, the old commandments to every situation, to every area of life. How often I have heard or read from professing Christians that have been drawn into the church of Rome or into the Orthodox church. And they have stated their reasons as being because of the experience, the new experience that they had not realized before. The aesthetic beauty of the building, the architecture, the, the beauty of the symbols that, were, that are before them, the smells, the bells, all of these various things and this experience has brought them to a new understanding. They base this upon this experience they have had. An involvement of all of their senses in the service. Or likewise, in modern evangelicalism, I have talked to people who go to churches because, and this is the reason they state, how I enjoy their singing. They're singing. Now, granted, we are to sing unto the Lord. But we don't attend and find a church simply and only because we like their singing. You see, innovation, that which is new, has no part in the worship of the Lord. And in fact, it is by the same old commandment that we worship God, and it is by that same commandment, that old commandment, that we are led by the Spirit of God in discerning the will of God for our lives as well. Whether you talk about whom to marry, whether you're talking about vocation, whether you're talking about moving from one area to another, You look to the law, to the commandments of God to determine those things. You apply the criteria that God has established in His Word, the old commandments, and ask the Spirit of God to give to you the wisdom to apply the old commandment to this new situation in your life. That's how you are led by God's Spirit. Jeremiah chapter 6. Beginning with verse 16, the prophet of God speaks on behalf of the Lord and he says, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, that is, Israel, Judah, the house of Judah said, we will not walk in it. We will not walk in the old ways. We will walk in our own ways, in the new ways. The various forms of worship that they had instituted. Their own understanding of God's commandments. We'll walk in our own ways. Verse 17, God says, also, I said, watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. 
Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because, notice what God says, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. You see, the problem was with Judah of that time in Jeremiah 5.30 and 31. It began with false prophets and false priests. An astonishing and horrible thing, God says, has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own power or authority. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end, God says. The Apostle John, dear ones, takes his readers back first to the old commandment. And that is where we should begin as well. The old commandments. And then we move on to the next main point. The Apostle John speaks of this commandment to love the brethren as a new commandment. Now, even though the commandment, before I get into that, let me read 1 John 2.8. 1 John 2.8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Even though the commandment John gives to his readers is an old commandment in the sense that it has been around for a long time. Nevertheless, John says, a new commandment I write to you. Now, has John lost all powers of reasoning? Is he beside himself at this point? Has he contradicted himself to say, this is an old commandment and yet it's a new commandment? Of course not. John is not saying that the commandment is old and new in exactly the same sense. If John stated that the commandment to love the brethren is old in the sense that it was given by God hundreds of years before, then John is not now stating that the commandment to love the brethren was just recently given for the first time. That's not what John is saying. That would be a contradiction. Rather, John is making it very clear here that though the commandment is old in quantity and time, it is new. It is fresh, it is alive, it is vibrant in quality. And how is that true? How is the commandment to love the brethren new in quality? How is it fresh and alive? Note carefully that the new commandment, according to John, is true, quote, in Him. It is true in Christ. You see, dear ones, through the life and through the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the old commandment to love the brethren has been given a newness and quality of life until then unknown. They certainly knew what it meant to love the brethren. But now with the coming of Christ, there is such a revelation of what that means that it's fresh and alive to them in a way that they did not understand that commandment before. You want to know what it means to love the brethren? John says, in effect, do you want to know what it means to love the brethren in this new and fresh and vital way? Look at Jesus Christ and how He laid down His life for the brethren. How he became a servant of all. How he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom 
for all. This is very similar in the way as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, dear ones. In this chapter, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does not give new commandments in the sense that he is altering or reinterpreting the old commandments. Jesus continuously says throughout this chapter, you have heard that it was said, but I say, Jesus is not introducing new commandments in the sense that he is giving them these commandments for the first time. He is not altering or changing the old commandments. He's not even reinterpreting the old commandments. He's clarifying and explaining the old commandments because of the perversion of the tradition of the elders that had been imposed upon the old commandments. He is giving life and understanding and vitality to those commandments that the tradition of the elders had made dead and stale and empty and void of meaning. And that's what Jesus does with the commandment to love the brethren as well. But the new commandment according to the Apostle John, is not only true in Him, that is, in Christ, but notice, it's also true in you. The new commandment becomes true. It becomes living. It becomes vital. It becomes vibrant in you as well. The commandment to love the brethren, dear ones, is to be continuously given a fresh new quality of expression in your life and in mine as we daily grow in loving the brethren. It is continuously new to us. It's not only true with this commandment, but God's commandments... Dear ones, if we allow them to, can become simply stale old commandments upon a page. We can simply go through the forms. We can simply go through the rituals. But it can be totally meaningless unto us. And there is the responsibility, therefore, in each of our lives to continuously flame the spark, the embers of loving the brethren because we are all susceptible to fall into that sin of not loving the brethren. We must take responsibility. We can't simply just float along and think that God is going to, to cause us, make us, force us to love the brethren. God gives us the grace to love the brethren, dear ones, but you must stir that up. You must use the means of grace to stir up those embers in your life. We do not want to fall into the trap of the, the Pharisees who allowed the commandments to become simply the tradition of the elders. And we do that, dear ones, by living daily in fellowship with Christ, by seeing daily that our life is hidden with God in Christ, by using, as I said, those means of grace, His Word, His Spirit, prayer, to fan those flames. This new commandment to love the brethren in your life will be true and evident because, John says, the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. 
You see, what John is saying here is that because the darkness of ignorance of the truth and the darkness of walking in that ignorance and living in that ignorance is gradually passing away in your lives as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, true light is already shining. He's talking about sanctification. The old is passing away. New, the new has come. There's certainly a sense in which the old definitively has passed away and the new has come, but there's also a sense in which the old is passing away. We call that sanctification, progressive sanctification. The first one we would call more definitive sanctification where there is, in principle, a real break with sin in the life of the believer so that he doesn't have to feel like he's victimized by sin that he can say no to sin by God's Spirit. But in the progressive sanctification, he is growing. And as the light shines, there is the darkness that is being dispelled in his life more and more and more as he applies the truth by the Spirit of God to his life. And then John... Thirdly, notes and states the false claim of these Gnostic teachers in verse 9, 1 John 2, 9. John says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Just as John Previously stated in verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. There he states the false claim of the Gnostic heretics. Here he states again a false claim of these false teachers. Now, we don't know for sure whether these false teachers were actually saying, I can literally hate the brethren, I can hate Christians, and yet be in the light. Or whether John is saying that these false teachers, by their envy, by their covetousness, by their indifference to one another, by their vindictiveness to one another, are, which are all fruits of hatred, by those means they are saying we can hate the brethren and yet walk in the light. You see, I doubt any of us are willing to say, we can come right out and say, I can hate the brethren. And I can be a Christian at the same time. But do we realize that we can fall into the same sin by living in these other sins of envying and coveting, of showing favoritism and partiality, of being indifferent to the needs of the brethren. Who cares? Doesn't matter of being bitter and resentful toward the brethren, of being so selfish that we don't consider others, but we simply look out for our own interests. See, I think that probably is more likely what was going on, that those which are the fruit of hatred were being expressed, that that was what they were living in. And John says, Rather, that's hatred for the brethren. To live in those sins is to hate the brethren. <clears throat> Apostle John declares that such a one cannot know, he cannot have assurance that he knows God if he's living in that kind of sin, but rather he is in darkness until now. That is, 
He is, into, he is in darkness until now. He has never been in the light and he's not in the light now. He is in darkness until now. He's not saying that he was once in the light, but now he's in darkness. He's in darkness until now. He's never understood. He's never walked in the true light. This is the false claim of these false teachers. And we find in verses 10 through 11, then the refutation of these false claims by the Apostle John. Verse 10, John says positively, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And then negatively, he says, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. <clears throat> Verse 10, He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is literally no offense in him. There is no offense or stumbling in him. That is, there is no legitimate offense in him that he offends others when he loves the brethren. When he's walking in that light, he's not going to legitimately be offending others, nor will others be legitimately taking offense at him as he walks in this light and loves the brethren. Now, certainly people can illegitimately take offense whenever we do what's right. Even when we sincerely do love the brethren. Now, I can love my children and I can tell them I love them and spank them and they may take offense because I have legitimately disciplined them. But that's not a legitimate offense. They should rejoice rather than being offended at the fact that they were disciplined. And so, we can take offense even though one is sincerely loving the brethren. But John also says in verse 11, on the contrary, there is continual offense and stumbling in one who hates his brother because he's walking in darkness and he can't see where he's going, nor does he even care where he's going. You see, the one who walks in darkness John says in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 of his gospel, loves the darkness. In fact, he runs from the light. He doesn't want the light to expose his sin. He doesn't want the light of the glory of Christ to expose the fact that he is not loving the brethren. Dear ones, do you run from the light? When the light is shined upon that particular sin in your life, do you run from it or do you confess it? Do you seek God's forgiveness for it? Love for the brethren, furthermore, dear ones, brings more light. You want to know the will of God? We were talking about God's will earlier. How will you know God's will? Well, you must walk in the light you must walk in His commandments. You must love the brethren. And I will guarantee to the degree that we as individuals and as a congregation do not love the brethren to that degree, God will shut off the light of our understanding of His will. You cannot expect God to illuminate your mind and understanding as to His will so that you can walk in it if you're not doing something so basic and so elementary as loving the brethren. <clears throat> the Word of God, dear ones, is exceedingly straightforward about the test of love. If you love your fellow brothers and sisters, that is the most powerful evidence that you know God. But if you do not love them, God says 
you are really walking in the darkness of ignorance and sin and of Satan's kingdom. In fact, this test is such a conclusive and objective test of the grace of God in a person's life that God declares in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides, dwells, and lives in death. That's how conclusive this particular test is. Regardless of what one says about their knowledge of God, whether they have been baptized, whether they have professed their faith, if they do not evidence a genuine love for the brethren, their profession of faith is a false one. It's a false one. And yet, if that is God's command with regard to even our enemies, God commands us not only to love the brethren, God commands us to love our enemies, to feed them if they're hungry, to give them something to drink if they're thirsty, to clothe them if they're naked. We are to love in that way, as God commands. If we're to do so for even our enemies, arguing from the lesser, as it were, to the greater, how much more God calls us to demonstrate our love for the brethren to whom we have been united by covenant, by the Spirit of God that dwells within us all. 1 Timothy 5.8 sets this principle out, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Galatians 6.10 says, We are to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. Especially. You're not to deny doing good to all men. You're not to deny loving your enemies at the expense of loving the brethren, but especially you are to love the brethren. You're especially to do them good. I might liken it in this way, dear ones, it is more heinous in God's sight to sin against those with whom you are covenantally bound. For example, <clears throat> we tend to look at the way in which we treat our family at home as not being as significant as the way in which we treat our boss at work or our non-Christian neighbor, or our teacher at school. We tend to, when it really gets down to the practical experience of it, how do we treat those outside of our household as compared to how do we treat the members of our family? And I think everyone can see how wrong it would be for a man to clothe and feed the family down the street who are hungry, but to not feed and clothe his own children. That would be ridiculous. Why? Because he is covenantally bound to them. They are united to him. There is a unique relationship that exists between them. It is sinful to rob a stranger, but it is even a greater aggravation of that sin to rob your parents who gave you life. Husbands, it is sinful to lose your temper with your boss. But it is an aggravation of that sin to lose your temper with your wife with whom you are one flesh. 
Wives, it is sinful to gossip about a friend in the neighborhood, but it is especially grievous to God to gossip about your own husband. I wonder, parents, do our children see a double standard and do they practice a double standard because we have a double standard. We, we tell them, you know, when they're going out in public, now I especially want you to be on your best behavior here. Or do we reinforce the fact that we're going out in public and I expect you to do everything that you do in the home? You see, I'm afraid that we have all kinds of double standards. And therefore, when we come to the church, we don't know how to treat one another because we don't know how to treat one another in the family. Quite honestly, beloved, our standards for conduct are higher for us outside the context of the family than they are within the family. And it's a tragedy. We really do not understand the responsibility that a covenantal union calls us to, according to God. That union between a husband and a wife calls a husband to love, cherish, and care for his wife as he would his own body, according to Ephesians 5.28, because they are one flesh. What he does to his wife, whether good or ill, he does to himself. How much more, dear ones, let me make this analogy. How much more are we brothers and sisters in Christ to love, cherish, and care for one another? For we are not simply one flesh with one another, but one eternal spirit with one another. A union that will endure long after the marriage union between a husband and wife has already come to an end. In other words, whenever we are bitter toward a brother... Or whenever we gossip with others about a brother or sister, whenever we neglect through fellowship to reach out in love and concern to one another, we not only inflict a grievous wound on them, we wound ourselves. And we wound the entire church of Jesus Christ. Christ's body. But on the other hand, my dear ones, Whenever we reach out in love to encourage, to in love correct, in love to admonish, to in love seek the good and welfare of our brother and sister, we not only do them good, we do ourselves good. And we do the whole body of Christ good. You know, John says in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You remember how in the Scripture, dear ones, we continuously find in various ways this particular analogy, Jesus saying, for example, in Matthew 25, if you did it to the least of these, my disciples, you did it unto me. Whatever, good or ill, if you did it to them, you did it to me. The conversion of the Apostle Paul. Jesus said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ because his church, every member of his church is in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And to harm and to endanger and to not love a brother or a sister is not to love the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Dear ones, I see Jesus Christ, whom I profess to dearly love, suffering the torments of hell 
for you as well as for me. Embracing you as well as me. Going with you as an advocate before the Father and pleading His own righteousness for you as well as for me. Do I profess to love Christ who holds me in His strong arms? And yet do I hate through these various means that I mentioned before, do I hate the brother or sister whom he also holds in those same arms as he does me? That cannot be. I can no more hate you than I can hate Christ. I want to simply close with a couple illustrations from the scripture itself to, to point out the importance of this truth. And I want to focus again upon this sin of envy, which I believe is a fruit of hatred and not a fruit of love, because in 1 Corinthians 13.4, we find God's word saying that love does not envy. Love does not envy. Envying is coveting what belongs to another, whether it's that person's wealth, that person's health, that person's status, that person's honor, prestige, gifts, appearance, coveting and wanting those things that another person has and belongs uniquely to them. In James chapter 4, you see the importance of this whole issue of coveting, envying, lusting. James 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust, or we could say you covet, you envy, and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. We read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of how this particular sin destroyed the lives of people. Cain and Abel Cain was destroyed because of his envy. God accepted the offering of Abel and Cain despised his brother. He envied, he coveted that approval and he murdered his brother. The brothers of Joseph coveted the honor that had been given to him and his father giving to Joseph this coat of many colors. The dreams that Joseph revealed that God had given to him. They coveted that. They made fun of him. And what did it lead to? Almost to his death. They ended up selling him into slavery. Korah. Dathan and Abiram in number 16 coveted the status, the honor, the office that God had given to Moses and to Aaron. And it brought down the destruction of their whole family. The disciples at the Lord's Supper the night in which the Lord was betrayed, were talking amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Envying, coveting, lusting for that place of power, prestige. And Jesus corrected them and said, it's not the one who rules that is the greatest, it is the one who serves who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
The one who, if I might restate that, the one who loves the brethren, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, there is this vicious cycle with this sin, particular sin of hatred, known as envy. Envy becomes resentment. Resentment leads to vengeance and vindictiveness. And that leads to such a severe depression at times and then finally total isolation. Either I've got to get rid of that person or I've got to separate myself totally from that person because I can't stand to be around him or her. The answer, dear ones, is to repent of the sin. The answer is service in the kingdom of God. Get busy serving the Lord without expecting the approval of men knowing that you will receive that well done thou good and faithful servant from the Lord God on that final day. The standard of love, dear ones, is God's law. God's law teaches us how we are to love. God's law teaches us how we are to treat our brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7 itemizes those characteristics of love that are a fulfillment of the law of God. But the example of love as well as the standard of love, is Christ himself because Christ fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He did not cling to his glory in heaven, but laid aside his glory in heaven in that intimate fellowship with the Father and stooped himself lower than any man has ever stooped himself to serve, becoming obedient not only to death, but to the cursed death upon a cross. The old commandment has become the new commandment in the life of Jesus Christ. May it continually, dear ones, become the new commandment in your life and in mine as we apply that old commandment in various situations and experiences in our life. And not only will you know that you know God by keeping this commandment to love the brethren, not only will you be assured that you know God, but you know what? All men will be assured that you know God. They will know that you are my disciples if you have love for the brethren. It will be an evangelistic tool in the hands of the Christian that the non-Christian cannot deny. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You. We give You thanks. For Your Word has cut the very core of our being today. The sword of the Spirit has pierced our hearts and our consciences and revealed to us who we are. And Lord, we're not happy with what we see. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us of our lack of love for the brethren. Oh God, we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would cause us to hate, envy, and selfishness and bitterness and favoritism. Oh God, cause us to love serving one another. Cause us not to seek the approval of men, but rather the approval of God. Bring us, Lord, to tears as we see how Christ loved the church. How he took upon himself the position of a servant and took the towel and washed his own disciples' feet. Cause us as leaders in the church to have that attitude before God. 
and cause the people of this congregation, the fathers in homes, the mothers in homes, to imitate that example of Christ as well. O Father, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Renew our faith and our confidence this day in You that we might go forth ready to serve You afresh and anew, filled with new hope, filled with a new commandment, a freshness, a new quality of life. For we pray these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.